Hello, this is OA On Air, the official podcast of O'Neill & Associates. I'm Kyan Isaacson, and welcome back. First up, we have 321 Go. Cosmo Macero and I are talking business and news of the week. Later in the show, Ann Murphy of O'Neill & Associates talks to Alan Miller, also known as the Human Knot. He is a street performer who has traveled the world putting on shows with his unique demonstrations, and you can find him performing at Faneuil Hall Marketplace. And in Two Minutes with Tom, I caught up with our CEO, Tom O'Neill, earlier this week, right after the president's remarks on Tuesday, where he attempted to walk back the remarks he made alongside Vladimir Putin at a joint press conference in Helsinki on Monday. First up, three, two, one, go. Let's talk about something important. Hello and welcome to 321 Go on OA On Air, the official podcast series of O'Neill & Associates, New England's leader in public affairs. My name is Cosmo Macero, your host for 321 Go. In this installment of 321 Go, MGM Resorts is suing more than a thousand victims of the Las Vegas mass shooting. It's a preemptive legal strike to avoid paying huge liability claims and, as you might imagine, many people are not happy about it. We'll discuss. And you've almost certainly heard of the game Fortnite by now because it's basically taking over planet Earth. We'll explain how a free game is able to generate millions in revenue every day and the unique place it now holds in modern culture. Finally. What's the most embarrassing thing that can happen to a public figure? Possibly being an unwittingly lampooned and memorialized forever in a Sasha Baron Cohen segment. Cohen's new Showtime program, Who is America?, is going to the extremes of deception to dupe everyone from Senate Majority Leader Trent Lott to Illinois Congressman Joe Walsh and other political leaders into sounding really stupid and naive on TV. Fake names, fake awards, fake media outlets, and pretty much fake everything have been deployed to create the elaborate cover stories necessary to land these hilariously real interviews. Joining me here on 321 Go is Kyan Isaacson. Hello. Kyan, hi. It's great to have you here as always. Always a pleasure. All right, then. Let's get to it. Faced with potential lawsuits from hundreds of victims of last year's mass shootings in Las Vegas, MGM Resorts International is trying an untested strategy, suing the victims first. They're not suing for money. They want a federal court to rule that it cannot be held liable for the shooting by more than a 1,000 victims and others it named in the suits. They say it named only people that have already sued or given notice that they intend to sue. At issue here is a, uh, a law ushered in under Homeland Security that conceivably provides protections for companies that institute certain measures for Homeland Security and therefore should not be held liable. This appears to be a tremendous stretch legally, uh, a a high-risk Cayenne, a high-risk PR move, uh, or, or, or a high-risk legal strategy with serious public relations implications. What do you think? I mean, this took a lot of people by surprise. My question is, where was the PR person when this decision was made? Where was the communications director? Where was really anybody else? I don't know how anybody else thinks that this is a good idea from the outset. I understand legal strategy and lawyers often think a little bit differently than others at the table, but in any sort of crisis situation that people encounter, 
we've all, you know, in this building certainly been a part of it. You sit at the table and you have to weigh your options. The legal strategy versus the PR fallout versus, you know, all of that. And this one, I'm disappointed to see that it seems the legal strategy won at that yeah. table. And again, I have no idea how that came to but, be, but just guessing. So here, here's, and, and I'm certainly surprised, but here's what I think could have happened, because I've seen this dynamic play out in crisis situations, right, when, in a corporate crisis, which this is. And I, I think the PR people were right there saying, look, Here's what here, here's 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 what's going to happen here. Here's what the issues are. Here's how we ought to deal with this. But they probably knew that this was a strategy that had been decided upon. And I think there's a couple of groups of people uh, inside that are that, that are that are involved here. It's the, it's the risk management and actuaries who say, okay, here we've played out a scenario. We've done an algorithm on what these liability claims are going to be, and here's the massive multi multi hundreds of millions of dollars in write downs we'll have to take. Blah blah blah, and, and, and therefore. It's worth it to try to avoid that liability by being aggressive. And then the legal strategist said, hey, here's a legal plan that might work. There's a lot of reputation uh, risk involved, but it, it, it may work. And it may still work. Right now we're experiencing this, this shock, I think, to, to, to this decision. Um, and that's inflicted some reputation damage. I wonder long term how this plays out, and I am absolutely, as a PR person, a communication strategist, an observer, going to watch this very closely to see how it plays out in all different ways. I think that the PR person probably didn't have any quantitative ammo to push back in with, you know, this is how much potential loss we'll see in damages of people not wanting to come to our facility anymore, not wanting to use our hotel. So I think you're right there, but I don't yeah. It just makes me feel bad reading it. Yeah, the, the, the last word on this, the layman's argument that, hey, wait a second, uh, bottom line is security didn't work properly. You had a guest come in with essentially an arsenal of weapons and commit this crime out from your property. There's got to be some liability there. And I, and I think that that's, that's kind of where the rubber meets the road. All right. Fortnite is a 2017 video game developed by Epic Games, which has become a huge global success, uh, a, a cultural phenomenon, something that crosses generations and demographics and age groups. If you follow the Boston Red Sox, the best team in baseball, you know that instead of playing cards, they're all playing Fortnite when they're not practicing and or playing the games, and this is absolutely the truth. Fortnite had a major presence at the recent Major League Baseball All-Star game. They had each... Uh, all-star ta- uh, striking their favorite poses of Fortnite characters. The thing is absolutely through the roof, and the revenue model is astonishing. You look very puzzled, and I'd like you to tell me why. I'm befuddled. I don't get it. <laughs> you don't get it. I don't get it. I mean, I understand it's a video game and that it's taking over and everybody wants to play, but I just I don't get it. Fortnite poses, Fortnite dances. What does that even mean? It's the fun little things the characters do in the games. What I think is fascinating about this is let's start with the revenue. Let's start with the, you know, with the, with the millions they, they're making, uh, you know, literally every hundreds of millions of dollars in revenue from these in-game purchases. The game is free, right? The game is free. It's not a $70 or $69 Xbox game. It's a free downloadable game to your device. And you make these incremental purchases as a player, as a kid, as a grown-up, whoever it may be. And the amount of revenue they're generating is tremendous. What I find the most fascinating is that 
there are literally people from all these different generations and demographics playing together around the world every day in these games. I will admit the first time I really heard about it was last week when you and our trusty podcast producer, Brooke, over here, were talking about Fortnite and how he plays it, as does your son. As does, again, the Red Sox. The number two ace, David Price, who's not really an ace this year, you, you, so it really you, is everybody. You, you, you may have heard that he, that, that he blamed an injury or the team blamed an injury on Fortnite. He played too much Fortnite. He had that's carpal not, tunnel That's syndrome. not real life. It, it, it's, it, it's real <laughs> enough life because, it's, because it really happened. Uh, anyways, it, it's, it's a major cultural phenomenon. It's a major economic for, force in the gaming industry uh, and worthy of mention here, I think, on 321 Go. <laughs> Sasha Baron Cohen's new Showtime program, Who is America, is his latest project to employ a variety of tactics of deception to lure public officials and public figures of all types into conversations that ultimately will embarrass and humiliate them for years to come. In this case, though, he has really ramped up the deception, the fake awards, the fake media outlets, and, the, and, and, and all of these elaborate cover stories that's needed to create these interviews. In this case, We've been talking about and looking at this kindergartens episode where the concept of arming toddlers in school as a defense mechanism is legitimately talked about and and legitimate conversations. And they legitimately uh, agree to it. Here's an example. This is Trent Lott being completely owned by his own gullibility and ridiculous view on this issue. I support the kindergartens program. We in America would be wise to implement it too. It's something that we should think about in America, about putting guns in the hands of law-abiding citizens, good guys, whether they be teachers or whether they actually be uh, talented children or highly trained preschoolers. It seems that Sasha Baron Cohen has gotten better and smarter, and many others haven't. Um, you know, I, I do think that it's, there's a side of it that's very funny. And it is satire, and he's making a mockery on purpose. Um, But in the world that we live in today of fake news and all of this, you would think people would be taking a little bit more caution and doing a little bit more homework. Um, Where's the staffing here? Where's the staffing to say, hey, this, this is not checking out? Yes, uh, one of the... Poor Congressman Walsh had his wife do the vetting, and... And and because uh, the website that they were sent to was written in Hebrew, she said, since we don't read Hebrew, we could not verify ourselves. That's a a poor excuse. That's right, Cayenne. And uh, speaking of former Congressman Joe Walsh, here's a soundbite that quite simply defies all reality. The intensive three-week kindergarten course introduces specially selected children from 12 to 4 years old to pistols, rifles, semi-automatics, and a rudimentary knowledge of mortars. In less than a month, less than a month, a first grader can become a first grenader. Um, it's, but what, what really bothers me about this, it's not so much that they've been duped, lots of people are duped, it's that once in the interview, they are endorsing and agreeing to the training of young children as early as three or four in the use of semi-automatic rifles, 
once they were duped to get there. What they said once they got there, uh, that's where that's where this goes off the rails for me. Yeah, well, I mean, you, you get yourself into that situation. Um, doesn't mean you can't or you shouldn't get yourself out of that. Get situation. yourself out of it by saying, wait a second, you're talking about arming three and four year olds? Oh no, no, I'm sorry, seven year olds? Okay, well that's all right. It's it, it's it's almost surreal. Yes. Uh, and you'd think both of these people, you'd think everyone was was in on the joke. But they're not, you know, yeah. and, and, and that's what makes it really funny. So we need to be on the lookout. He's not done. No, no. There's going to be more to come. Exactly. We will get fooled again. All right. That's going to do it for this week's edition of 321Go. Kiana, pleasure as always. Thanks for having me. Excellent. We'll see you next time. 321Go is recorded in Studio 10A, just off the historic Tip O'Neill Room in our building in the heart of Government Center in Boston, Massachusetts. Thanks for listening. Goodbye till next time. I'm Cosmo Macero. And that's all for 321GO. Up next, an interview with the human knot. Welcome to OA On Air. I'm Ann Murphy, Senior Vice President at O'Neill & Associates. We have a really special guest today, Alan Miller. And you're also known, though, as Alakazam and the Human Knot. Right. Now, Al entertains crowds all over the world with his daredevil and death-defying acts. We're so lucky to have you today. You're one of the longtime street performers at Faneuil Hall Marketplace. Welcome, Al. Thank you. Well, for those who don't know, what is a street performer? Uh, well, my style of street performing show uh, and the style that you mostly, mostly see at Fanny Hall is like a circus comedy based show where we, uh, we gather a crowd, we do a bunch of tricks and then at the end uh, people pay us. So there's like, uh, you know, we generally uh, can attract a couple hundred people at a time. Um, that's, that's what my kind of show is, but there's, there's a bunch of different kinds. You know, there's, there's busking, which is kind of like um, playing music while people walk by. There's statuing, which is, you know, pretending mm -hmm, you're a statue. There's, uh, there's all kinds of stuff, but street performing in general is, uh, we refer to it as a circle show, which is a circle of people around the circus act going on. That's so tell me it. about, like, you've been there at Faneuil Hall Marketplace for a long time. Tell me about when you started to perform. Um, I started performing in 1996 in Australia, and I first came through um, Faneuil Hall in 1998. Wow. Yeah. It's been a while. 20 years. Crazy. 20 years. And you, yes, right. A little anniversary there. Mm -hmm. uh, have the crowds changed at all, or is it still the same type of people? I don't think they've people? changed, no. Mm -hmm. I think things have changed. Uh, you know, like everyone's got their cell phones out now, which didn't happen 20 years ago. Um, but uh, no, it was cool. I kind of found Faneuil Hall just through um, people. You just find out about places when you're a street performer. Like in Australia, I started in Sydney. Someone says, hey, there's a good spot in Melbourne. Oh, really? I'll go check it out. Someone says, hey, there's a good spot in Perth. Oh, really? Go check it out. Hey, Canada's supposed to be good. You know, you just... Wow, it's word of mouth. People talk, yeah. And, and, yeah. Uh, and I met a guy from Boston called Jim, and he was called uh, The Jim Show, and he was pretty big around here uh, in the 90s. And um, That's creative, The Jim Show. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah, it's perfect for his character. Anyway, he told me about Boston, and then, and then that year I ended up coming down, and maybe only for a week or two, but I was just blown away. It was amazing. 
Yeah. I know Daniel Hall does have that uh, quality that is, you know, because it's a pedestrian mall, so you're not, you don't have the traffic per se, right. with the cars, uh, yeah. you know, getting involved. So you do have that. And I think it is set up right now because it's a beautiful shot. So people with their cameras and, you know, will yeah. take the pictures and yeah. the historic location and having someone doing these acts. Pretty cool. It's pretty cool. Yeah. I think so. Well, how do you describe your act? Visual? I mean, it's very visual. And this is a podcast. So describe how... Um, well, I do on the street performing here in Fanny Hall. I do uh, contortion, comedy, chainsaw juggling, and then at the end of my show, I climb up on a really tall pole and I throw machetes around. Yeah, all in a day's work, right? right. Yeah, and these are things that I've been doing for a long time. Like it's second nature to me, but to the average person walking by, it's like, oh my god, this guy's got nuts, you know? <laughs> so how how do you prepare for that act? How do you figure out? Okay, I can do this, and I'm can do this and do that and how do you practice uh, well you just you, I did a lot of practicing at home you know that's the best place to practice you don't want to practice in your show because then you make mistakes so um, yeah I just I just uh, if I find something I want to do like these days I'll look on YouTube if I want to learn something um, but back in the day I used to have to go to the library and look in like old circus books and you know before the internet was big I was yeah and uh, and uh, maybe meet someone who's a juggler. Oh, I know a guy who can juggle. Oh, maybe I can meet him. He can show me something. You know, it's uh, pretty cool. Well, we don't want to ask if you've had any accidents, but I mean, it is kind of dangerous. You're juggling with machetes and yeah. things like that. I mean, so. the machetes I don't really make mistakes with that often. Um, but the chainsaw is erratic. Uh, you know, because it's a it's a it's on. Oh. It's running and you're throwing it. So uh, twice, twice since I've been juggling chainsaws, I've nicked myself, Ooh. which is not, that's a pretty good odds, really. Right. And yeah. um, I guess that's what makes your act so appealing and so interesting. <laughs> it's like the danger risk, right? That's why people want to want to watch it. Right. Uh, do you involve the audience in your act at all? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, from the very beginning, I start talking to people, like, even the, just the first person I talk to, I just say, hey, how you doing? You want to see a show? You know, I'm just interacting all the time, I'm getting them to clap, getting them to cheer, making them laugh. I'm getting them to put their hands up, clap, do this, make noise. Just yeah, it's completely all That's about the audience. That's part of it, right? To oh, really yeah. have them. If there's no audience, them. like the show is terrible. Right. Basically. You have the feedback from them. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and do you think that you know Fanny Hall Marketplace is a good spot for street performers, and why is that? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. Um, as I was saying earlier, we like we travel around the world looking for the best spot. We're kind of like Street performers are kind of like surfers. We we uh, we look we just, we're looking for the best wave. You know what I mean? Right. And and out of all the places I went in those first few years, Boston was the place. It was the one place that was better than anywhere else. Well, I know that there are other places I've seen around, like Harvard Square, but that's more busking. I don't think it's more like act. There used to be a lot more stri uh, circle shows at right. um, Harvard Square. Um, and then, like, I think in, like, maybe about 10, 12 years ago, there was, like, construction on the space where we would do shows, and that construction lasted forever. And then afterwards, like, it just didn't start again. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's unfortunate because it's such, a, it, it's such an artistic thing as well as people are seeing a live performance. Harvard was different as well. It used to be a, a place where people would just hang out. It was a real kind of community vibe. Mm. And all the stores were cool and the music stores and this and that. And rents go up, stores change, they become banks. And right. suddenly it's not a cool place to hang out anymore. Mm -hmm. You know? Um, so 
street performing there now isn't as great as it was. It used to be great. Mm -hmm. Like it was one of the places I heard of right. when I was in mm -hmm. Australia. Someone said, you got to check out Harvard Square. You know? Interesting. Yeah. Well, Faneuil Hall still has it, and I don't think that that's going to change anytime soon with the mm -hmm. footprint of they're not going to change the location, definitely. Right. Um, so you travel around the world. You was telling me before we started that you were just in South Africa. Mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, how does Boston compare with other street theater around the world? Um, I'd say it's most common, uh, sorry, most um, has most in common with uh, London, just because London, there's a place called Covent Garden, a uh, very old street theater uh, location, and every day, lots of people doing shows on two or three different spots. Every day of the year, and except for Christmas, they don't like to do shows on Christmas Day. <laughs> well, maybe that maybe that's a good thing too. Yeah. You need a day off once in a while, um, right? But yeah, there's 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 major hubs around the world, like uh, Sydney, London, Boston, uh, Paris. Those are like major street theater hubs. So even if you're in a country, do you speak different languages, or if they don't speak English in a country that um, is not an English speaking, I tend English to go to countries. Or either they speak English, they know English, or I can throw in a little bit of their um, language. So if I go to Germany, which I was in Germany last month, um, I do my show in English. In a like, I speak slower, uh, and I throw in some punchlines in German. You know, uh, same thing if I go to like a, a different country. Um, but most of the time, if you just if you're in a country that like where they, where they learn English in school. Um, if you just I guess it's slowly, more of a, almost like it. a universal language now for traveling. Yeah, it anyway. definitely is. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. But uh, but no, I haven't been like to Japan or China or anything where they just don't speak English. So mm -hmm. I don't know. Maybe that's that's how you've got to get out of your comfort zone. Maybe right. go yeah, there. Yeah, do a know. silent act to music. Right, yeah. right. Well, I did see uh, on your website that um, a quote. Did Bruce Springsteen really say that you were the best street performer <laughs> yeah. he's ever seen? Yeah. Absolutely. How, how did that come out? So I was in Sydney uh, performing at uh, the dock there, and um, and Bruce Springsteen and his wife were there with his like entourage, you know. And I didn't realize, but I picked two of his bodyguards to be in my show. Oh. Um, <laughs> and uh, and that's basically what he said to me after the show. He said, "You're the greatest street performer I've ever seen," and he put like three hundred fifty dollars in my hat. Oh, that's good. <laughs> right, and he also said. I want to learn more about you. I want to know you. And he gave me his contact details and and um, said, when you're in the States, uh, if you're if I'm coming through town, give us a call, come to the show. And I've been, I've probably been backstage at like 20 Springsteen shows now. Wow. Just because whenever he comes through town, I call and they go, yeah, come on, come and watch. They get me in the front row and then backstage after the show, hanging out. Well, cool. I think we should send this podcast to Bruce Springsteen and have him come down to Faneuil Hall Marketplace to watch your act so that we can also capture a moment, too. Uh, that'd be cool. That'd that be would cool. be cool. Well, <laughs> other than the website of Faneuil Hall Marketplace, how do people learn more about you and where you're going? Uh, I have my own website, thehumannot.com. Uh, I'm on Instagram, thehumannot. And um, I, I generally post my uh, tour schedule on my website where I'm going to be. Um, and that's that's basically it, really. If you Google Alakazam, the human knot, there's all kinds of stuff that we'll comes up. We'll find you. Yeah. And I guess it's always like when you go and see a show, especially with the kiddos, I think maybe you say, don't try this at home, right? I say, <laughs> kids, don't try this until you get home. <laughs> until you get home. Okay. Well, thank you so much. I look forward to seeing you my next time I'm down at Faneuil Hall Marketplace. Thanks so much for coming on the podcast. No worries. Hi, Cayenne. 
Hi, Tom. Nice to be back on OA On Air. Nice having you here with us again. Thank you. Uh, so we're going to talk a little bit. You're my favorite podcaster. Me? Yeah. Yep. Thank you. You're welcome. Wow. I feel very special. Well, you're really good at what you do. Why, thank you. You're pretty good. You're pretty good yourself. You want to talk about Trump and Russia? You know, today's activity where he came back and tries to say that he, by the changing of one word from would to would not, it's like, it's like this is the president of reality TV. Forget what happened yesterday, for today is the real show. And it just doesn't work. Um, I, I dare say, even though he was imposed upon by every standing leader in the Republican Party going into the White House last night and today to persuade him to change his mind and his stance on what it is he had to say while standing on the platform with, with President Putin yesterday, what he did today makes yesterday look even even worse than it was. He has a history of walking back things that he got caught up in by accident or because he didn't think about it or because he was telling what he his, his innermost, innermost feelings and the way he really feels about things, whether it's Charlottesville or his own intelligence agencies here, here in the United States, they being wrong and, and the Russian Federation being right. If anybody believes that for, for a moment, then they're sadly mistaken. And I, I can't help if I, if I show my Democratic colors, really their American patriotic colors, as far as I'm concerned. Well, and on this issue, what seems to be a little bit more different than other times where he's been outlandish or inappropriate or, or worse, we're seeing a lot of Republicans come forward, Republican leadership, uh, with very strong statements. Is it, it feels like it, this might be different but is it different? Like now, my, I guess my question is, now what? We- the, the feeling I have is that yesterday's action were, and, and it should have been, a convulsion for Donald Trump. I, I hope by his coming back and trying to change the word to make it look like he really did support his own intelligence agencies today as opposed to what he said yesterday, I hope it doesn't give a ramp way or a pathway to Republicans to kind of say, okay, he, he really misspoke himself, we're back to work and, and yeah. good times again. He and that's, that's, that's a reach, in my opinion. Yeah. So what has bothered me in the past is uh, it's not new for even for members of, of Congress, Republicans included, to come out to tweet, to make statements that they disagree or they're disappointed or, or sometimes stronger language. But then it's what they do about it. And in the past... Nothing has really happened after they are disappointed or dismayed. What can Congress do on both sides of the aisle in light of what happened this week to make some change? I, I hope, again, that they don't buy into this, 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 this changeover, overnight changeover that Donald Trump the, has The change has. of a contraction? A, a change of simply a contraction. Um, but the people like Newt Gingrich, a leader in the Republican Party who had the right thing to say today in the face of what happened yesterday, chastising, criticizing the president, his president of the United States, Fox News doing the same thing, showing an uncharacteristic uh, negative throw to, to their president, yeah, the Wall Street Journal as well. I think if they stay on and don't provide the ramp a passageway for Republicans within Congress to say, uh, let's wash our hands of it, let's go on with other things, get back to work and so forth, and forget where we've been, um, it, it's, they're going to be hard-pressed, I think. 
because they're looking at Election Day, and they want to stay on the right side of this president who has, in some cases, and in most cases, within their Republican districts, more power and more votes than they have. And they're concerned about it and afraid of it, frankly. So the gumption meter is up and running. So what, what would you like to see them do? What kind of policy change? What kind of hearings? What can we, what would you, if you were advising somebody, would you advise people in Congress and, and our leaders to step up and, and hold him accountable for what he said this, this week? I would, I would hope that they would hold his hand to the fire, not let him, not let him extract himself from you know, yesterday's activities, but hold his hand to the fire and just keep going to make sure that he does the right thing while he's presiding president of the United States. So the story is obviously still unfolding, but I guess we will have to wait and see what happens in the days and weeks to come. Yeah, and I, I think America has on more than one occasion accepted the apology of this president as he tries to distract one more time about what it is he did or didn't do uh, to right or wrong, that they hold his hand to the fire and, 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 and make sure that they continue to do so. That's it for this week's episode, but on OA On Air Extra this week, Mike Sherry is talking to Michael Patrick Murphy, a local author who just released his first book. Neighborhood Lines is a novel that follows two young men in the late 80s and early 90s as they navigate the complex and changing atmosphere of Boston during that time, particularly as it relates to racial relations in their community. So be sure to check that out. And when you're done listening, be sure to subscribe. You can find us on SoundCloud, iTunes, and really anywhere you listen to podcasts. Also, if you're interested in learning more about O'Neill & Associates, our work, or any of the voices you're hearing here each week, head over to our website, O'Neillandassociates.com. And you can also find our podcast there. Talk to you next week.